Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist. My name is Will Faison. As many of you know, uh, Cliff and Wendy and several other members from our church are overseas right now enjoying a nice vacation looking at the Reformation and looking at history over there. So we pray that they are uh, having safe travels and a great time there. I have the opportunity this morning to preach God's Word with you. So if you have a Bible, uh, I would invite you to open it up, or if you don't, there's one in front of you in the pew, and it'll also be on the screen. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning, and then this evening we will look at verses 7 to 12. Over the next 30 minutes, we're going to look at six verses that would probably take you somewhere between 15 and 20 seconds to read through and would probably take you a lifetime to actually apply rightly. And so over the next 30 minutes, we're going to look at what God is calling us uh, to understand about the Beatitudes this morning. Please join me in prayer as we open up God's Word. Father, what a grateful opportunity we have to come before you and to study your Word. God, to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive it, knowing that you are calling us to not just receive knowledge, but to take that knowledge and to apply it to our lives, to seek to grow and to pursue you. And so, God, I pray that as we study this morning that we will become more like your son, that we will make steps closer to our pursuit of holiness. God, speak through me, a weak vessel. May you work through the power of your spirit through my teaching and also in our hearts this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I've got a little prop with me this morning. I pulled it out of my savings account. I'll have to put it back tomorrow or they may close my account. But I brought with me a $100 bill. Many of y'all would most likely recognize that. You may be seen it at some point in your life. And if I held it up, most of y'all would probably believe that this is a $100 bill, that it's not a counterfeit. And if you were to come and look closely, you would realize that it really is a $100 bill. And there's certain things about this bill that make it or define it being a $100 bill. There are distinctive characteristics about this that let us know that it is not a counterfeit bill. If you were to look closely, you would see that there's this blue 3D security ribbon that runs vertically on this bill that goes up and down. And when you see it, it kind of shines, and there's 100s written inside of it. If you were to turn the bill and look on the bottom side right here, you would see a bell and the 100. And as you turn it into the light, the bell and the 100 change from green to gold. When you look, there's this little tan circle right here, and it looks like it's just a blank image, but if you were to hold it up in the light, you would see an outline of Benjamin Franklin's face. And if you had really, really, really good vision or a good magnifying glass, if you looked over the shoulder of Benjamin Franklin, right on his collar, you would see written out the United States of America. If you took your thumb and rubbed it over Benjamin Franklin's shoulder as well, you would feel that it is raised, that there's a little bit of texture to it. And all these things are designed to show that this bill, I'm going to put it back in my pocket where I don't lose it, that this bill is real, that it is authentic. 
These distinguishing marks characterize for us what a real $100 bill is. In a couple of years, they changed those. They, they added more marks because it was getting harder and harder to distinguish what a counterfeit bill was to a real bill. Now, let me ask you this. What if I asked you to tell me the distinguishing marks of a Christian? What are the distinguishing marks of a Christian? We look at this bill and we can see the different things printed on it. We can see the color changes and the ribbon and the texture and, and the, the things written out on that bill. But what is it, if you were to think about your life, if we were to think about what makes a Christian, what marks a true Christian? What gives evidence of an authentic believer? The answer for us is found partly in the Beatitudes. You see, the Beatitudes are evidence of an authentic, of an authentic Christian. They serve as the distinguishing marks of a true believer. They give evidence of the new life. If we say that we are Christians, these things in the Beatitudes would indicate that we are believers. We see here that there is a difference between real, authentic Christians and fake ones. That sometimes we may appear as authentic, but if we were to look closely, we wouldn't see the distinguishing marks of a believer. And so what we're going to look at this morning is that these Beatitudes describe what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is explaining these, and we look at them in part this morning, but we will complete them this afternoon or this evening, and we're going to see that this is what a believer's life is called to look like. So what then is a Beatitude? A Beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus. It's a rough transliteration of this word, basically meaning blessed or perfectly happy. It means that we are blessed, that we've been given divine joy or perfect happiness. It points to the idea of inner satisfaction. And so Jesus says, blessed are these people that are characterized by these distinguishing marks, who have this inner satisfaction. And so they provide for us not only the distinguishing marks of a Christian, but they also give us the roadmap to how we're going to pursue those marks. My generation and most people a little bit older than me, anytime we get in a car, we have a GPS. Whether it's an actual GPS device or it's on our phone, no matter where I travel, I'm always pulling out Google Maps and plugging in my destination and seeing where I need to go. And as I look at that, it, the GPS provides for us where our destination is and how to get there. And it gives you each turn and each direction and each area or, or how long it's going to take you to get there. And if you follow those directions accurately, you will reach your destination. Well, the Beatitudes serve a similar way. They show us how to reach our destination. That is the kingdom of heaven. They lay out for us, this is your destination and these are the steps that you take to get there. And if you follow each of these marks, you will realize that you are moving in the right direction. And so, first off, we have to acknowledge that these Beatitudes are a complete list. We can't pick and choose which ones we want to characterize our life. If I want to travel and get to my destination, I can't choose whether I'm going to, to follow the GPS on this turn or the next turn or just do the one down the road. I have to follow all of them. And the same goes with the Beatitudes. We must look at them, we must examine them, and we must examine our lives and see if we are characterized by the things that Jesus speaks of here. And so Jesus goes on, he teaches us, he tells us these are the marks of a true Christian. Each of these should be evident in our lives. 
Now, some at times are going to be more evident than others, but the idea is the same, that all of these, if we are going to walk in the Christian faith, if we are going to live it out as we should, that all of these should mark our lives. And so we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 6. The main idea this morning, if you want to write this down or just take a one-sentence takeaway of what the idea that Jesus is getting at this morning, it is this, that the Christian character and blessings found in the beatitude are only made possible in our lives through Jesus Christ and His grace. That the Christian characters and the blessings found in the beatitudes are only made possible in our lives through Jesus Christ and His grace. It is only by God's grace through Christ and His supernatural power working through us that we will be able to be characterized by the Beatitudes. That we will be able to live a life that is marked by these distinguishing features of the Christian life. That they are impossible to accomplish in and of ourselves. That in our own strength, and our own power, and our own ability, we do not have the resources to put these precepts into practice. And so we come to find out that we are to be marked by these truths and we must rely solely on Christ as the supply and power in our lives to accomplish this. That these statements are a description of character. That it is not, we must understand, it is not a new code of morals. This isn't the new Ten Commandments. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It is a description. To put it another way, they are descriptive before they are prescriptive. They're about who we are more than what we do. They give a description of character. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he explains that there is a blessing that follows that, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so with these things in mind, let's look at these beatitudes. The first beatitude found in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of us want to be blessed. Many of us say, God bless America. We we desire to be blessed in our lives. And so we probably all wonder, what does it mean to have a blessed life? What does it look like to be truly blessed? Not in the worldly sense, but in the godly sense. Does it mean that we have a great marriage? Does it mean that we have uh, successful children or a prosperous life? Does it mean that we have material wealth and comfort? That we have a good job? That we have plenty of vacation? that we have an early retirement. Maybe all of these things are included in a list of blessings, but none of them are included in Jesus' listing of blessings here in the Beatitudes. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the financially successful. Blessed are those who live a, a long and prosperous life. No, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're going to find out that through the eyes of Christ and scriptures that often the blessings that we look for are not where we would normally find them. That the blessings that we expect to receive are different than what the world would define as blessings. Jesus doesn't say your life is blessed if you're successful. He says your life is blessed if you are poor in spirit. And so what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means for us to be humble, to be lowly, to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy before God, to confess that we are unworthy and nothing before him. To acknowledge our sin and to to acknowledge that we have a complete absence of pride and self-reliance. It's a form of repentance. And so to be poor in spirit means that we are emptying ourselves of who we are. That we come to God, we acknowledge our emptiness, and he fills us. 
But the thing is that he cannot fill us until we empty ourselves of ourselves. And so we see two sides of the gospel here. There is conviction and there is conversion. First, there is conviction of our brokenness and our emptiness, of our poverty. And so God says we must empty ourselves. We must be poor of spirit. And then there is a conversion in Jesus Christ. We are filled by Christ and his fullness. We come empty in order to be filled. And so Jesus isn't speaking of being wealthy or poor here. He's not saying blessed are those who do not have financial success. No, he is speaking about our spirit. He's speaking of a brokenness that comes from seeing ourselves in light of the gospel, of seeing ourselves in front of a perfect and holy God. And so this passage reminds us we do not rely on our abilities. We do not rely on our own power or position or wealth or education or any other worldly success. Instead, we acknowledge that we are nothing and that we have nothing before God. And then we look to God, we submit to Him in complete dependence of His grace and mercy in our lives. We come to Him as a familiar hymn of Rock of Ages so eloquently states. The writer says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The hymnist understands, he understands that we come to God being poor in spirit, that we come emptying ourselves of our nothingness and receiving the grace and fullness that God so freely gives through Jesus Christ. And when we do this, what do we gain? Jesus says that those who are poor in spirit are blessed because they receive the kingdom of heaven. We are not promised an earthly kingdom. The Jews would have believed that we were going to receive an earthly kingdom, that their savior, that their king was going to come and establish a political kingdom here on earth. But Jesus says, no, that's not taking place. I'm giving you an eternal kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, one that is present in the heart of every true believer but also one that is still yet to come, one that will be established when Christ comes and rules and reigns and establishes himself over the entire world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning here goes hand in hand with being poor in spirit. We recognize our sin. We recognize that we are empty and we feel our sorrow and fallenness. D.A. Carson says this, mournfulness can be understood as the emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit. Mournfulness can be understood as the emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit. The person who examines their life and who sees their sin and their brokenness and sees God's perfection and holiness will ultimately mourn. They will mourn over the things that he or she does in their lives. And so when Jesus speaks of mourning, he is referring to this feeling of deep sorrow, this regret, this sadness, this grief, this weeping over our sin. We acknowledge our bankruptcy and we begin to see our sin in the same way that God sees it. We begin to despise it. We begin to mourn over our sinfulness. We cry out like Paul in Romans 7, 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
But look at the blessing that Jesus tells us that those who mourn will receive. He says those who mourn will be blessed because they will be comforted. The person who mourns is the person who is led to repentance. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way so eloquently. He says, For it is when a man sees himself in this unutterable hopelessness that the Holy Spirit reveals unto him the Lord Jesus Christ as his perfect satisfaction. Your great sorrow leads to joy, and without the sorrow there is no joy. So I asked this morning, when is the last time that you mourned over your sin? When is the last time that you weeped and grieved over your fallenness? Ask the Lord this morning to give you a spirit of poverty that you would be mourning over the wretchedness of your sin, and that he may also give us a burden for the sin of others, that we may mourn the lostness of unbelievers, and that we will be burdened for their salvation in Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall inherit the earth. Or sorry, they shall be comforted. Beatitude number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The third beatitude and blessing that Jesus describes comes to those who are meek. To be meek means that we are humble, that we are gentle, that we are not aggressive. One definition defines it as an attitude of humble, submissive, and expectant trust in God and a loving, patient, and gentle attitude towards others. So this definition provides for us two main ideas about meekness. One, that it relates to our relationship and submissive trust to God. So meekness relates to how we relate to the Lord, how we submit and trust in His sovereignty. But it also relates to a loving and, passion, or loving and patient and gentle attitude towards others. So not only are we meek before God, acknowledging our humbleness and acknowledging our weaknesses, but we're also meek before others. We're not aggressive when others speak wrongly about us. And so the opposite of meekness here is a harsh and aggressive and proud attitude, an attitude that demands self-justification and self-vindication. But meekness is marked by satisfaction and contentment in Christ to be slow to anger and to take offense. It does not mean that meekness is, or it does not mean that meekness means weakness. Meekness here is compatible with strength and authority and power, and we understand that because Jesus exemplified meekness for us. Philippians 2, 5 to 8 tells us, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped.'" but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Isaiah writes of our meek Savior in chapter 53, verse 7. He says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so what does meekness promise to us this morning? It promises to, to us deliverance and inheritance. Jesus says that the meek are blessed because they will inherit the earth. This is a reflection of Psalm 37, verse 11, if you would like to look at that again. But we're reminded of our inheritance that we gain through Jesus Christ. But it's not an earthly inheritance, it's an inheritance that is heavenly and eternal. 
that it is made possible through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, sanctifying us, making us meek before God and before others. Then in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So up to this point, each of the Beatitudes have been calling us to look inwardly at ourselves, examining our state before God. And now with this fourth fourth Beatitude, we begin to see a change in emphasis. We begin to see a solution to our needs. And the solution is that we have a desire to pursue Jesus and to pursue righteousness. When we are poor in spirit, when we acknowledge our sin, and when we mourn our sin, and we become meek before God and others, we desire to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means two main things. First, it is a passionate desire to be freed from sin. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means that we have a passionate desire to be free from our sin, to flee from sin in all areas of our lives. But it also means that we have a passionate desire to be right before God, to see God's standards obeyed and and lived out in every area of our lives. And so Jesus uses here this imagery of hunger and thirst. He's giving us a picture of someone who is passionately desiring something that they cannot live without. Righteousness here is seen something as essential to life itself. Something that is not a passing feeling, but something that is required in order to have life. There's this profound desire that goes on and on and on until it is satisfied. And so the imagery of hunger provides for us this idea of something that can hurt, something that can be painful until it is satisfied. It leaves you in this feeling of desperation and suffering and agony until it is gone away. And so this is what Jesus says characterizes the Christian's life, that we must have a passionate hunger and thirst for righteousness, a desire to conform one's life to God's will and God's purposes and God's plans. Jesus says if we're characterized by such a hunger and thirst that we will be satisfied. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died so that we could be satisfied and filled in him alone. Christ died for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could be satisfied and filled in Christ alone. And the amazing thing about a hunger and thirst for righteousness is as Christ satisfies that hunger and thirst, he increases that hunger and thirst. It's the process of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And so as he fills us, we become more hungry for who he is, more thirsty to become more like Christ, to be absolutely holy. And it continues in our life until we meet the Lord. And so I ask this morning, what is it that you hunger and thirst for? What is it that you cannot live without? What is it that is so passionately desired in your life? Would it be that you hunger and thirst for righteousness? My prayer is that my fulfillment and your fulfillment will be found only in Christ. That we will pursue Him, that we will hunger for Him, that we will thirst for Him, and that we will thirst for righteousness. That we will seek a closer relationship with Him each and every day of our lives. And only then will we find true satisfaction. May we be a people who are poor in spirit, 
May we be known that we come to God humbly submitting and acknowledging our emptiness and our nothingness. May we mourn over our sin. May we not guard it or protect it or, or tell lies about it or, or act like we do not sin, but may we acknowledge that we are broken and sinful people, that we come before a holy and perfect God. May we live a meek life, a gentle life before others, not retaliating or justifying ourselves or vindicating ourselves before them, but knowing that God sees us as we truly are. And may we hunger and thirst for righteousness in all areas of our lives. May be it the one thing that we passionately pursue. And so Jesus speaks here of the Beatitudes. It's these characteristics that are called to define and distinguish our lives from those that are not true believers. And so my prayer this morning is that we will take these truths and that we will be characterized by them. That we will take the knowledge of the Beatitudes and that we will begin to live our lives and be marked by these distinguishing marks. And as we close, I remind you that the Christian character and blessings found here in the Beatitudes are only made possible in our lives through Jesus Christ and His grace. Please join me in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning knowing that we cannot accomplish these things on our own. God, we acknowledge that left on our own devices that we will not be marked by this Christian character and these Christian blessings. But God, we know that through your grace and through your Son, we can come before you, acknowledging our poverty in spirit, mourning our sin, living a meek life before you, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. God, may we be a congregation known for the Beatitudes. God, may our lives be marked by these truths. God, as our character becomes aligned with these, may we receive the blessings that you give. God, may we pursue them. May we pursue you. May we desire you in all things and in all areas of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.